Music to Black Narcissus, released in 1947, and is uh, was a suggestion from one of our listeners, so thank you for that, Arthur. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us in iTunes. Just search for Classic Movie Reviews, or in Facebook, same thing. Or you can go to the internet, and just go to ClassicMovieReviews.net. And I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm recording from North Bend today. And I'm Bob Johnson, uh, recording here in Los Angeles, welcoming you all back to Classic Movie Reviews and a terrific film, Black Narcissus. Wow. Thanks again for the uh, suggestion, Arthur. We, I was excited enough this morning that I could hardly wait to get started on the podcast. There's so much to this film. It's... it's uh, it's got a lot of themes uh, going on, and so beautifully photographed. Oh, my. Yeah, I did something that I haven't done in quite a while, which is I actually watched it twice, and the second time I took notes. So this could end up being a little bit of a longer podcast. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. I'm looking at a page and a half of notes that I made, and uh, I could watch it again. I, there's so much going on. I. Just a little bit of background on the uh, on the uh, team that that made this film, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. They formed a, f- a company back, I think, in 1943 called the Archers, and they independently produced uh, over 20 films. Most of those were very successful in the 1940s and 1950s, and they were given a lot of latitude by the rank organization to make these and then later in the um, in the period they they kind of got sideways with the rank organization and they went to uh, they took their production company over to uh, Alexander Cordes productions but they've made some really wonderful film uh, that I know our listeners would love to see just three of them that come to mind I wrote, wrote a note on the Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, I love that title, from 1943. The Canterbury Tale from 1944, where there's a U.S. Army sergeant named Bob Johnson. That alone makes it a favorite of mine. <laughs> I didn't know I was in that movie, but uh, we had a good time. And then uh, Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, The Red Shoes from 1948. All excellent and all Really different films. They were, I think the partnership really was a success. And Stairway to Heaven, 
that is a super interesting movie that's really hard to find, actually. And I tried to look for a copy on Amazon, but all the reviews said they were kind of like bootlegged copies. I did end up finding a copy on YouTube that's pretty decent, uh, but that was the movie they made directly before Black Narcissus and had some really incredible special effects in it as well. Oh, my. I, I, I missed that one. Is David Niven in that? Yeah. That is, and that's one of their films as well. Oh, okay. That's another one to add. I've seen that once in a while on Turner Classic Movies. I feel like there's something with up with that movie, like maybe a copyright thing or something, because it, it, I would think it would be available on Blu-ray and you know, like you know really good quality DVD, but it's it just seems not to be non-existent. You know, be, earlier before we started this podcast, we were talking about maybe doing a a series of reviews on um, the actor Sabu. We could almost do another series on the Michael Powell Emmerich. Pressburger partnership because they made so many excellent films. I'd be interested in that for sure. I, I really love the opening, uh, the very, very opening with the gong. Yes, that, that, that that's their classic trademark, yes. Yeah, that's got to be one of the best, like, uh, I don't even know what those things are called, but kind of like the title cards for the production companies. Uh, I love that one. I feel like it just it, it draws you in, like, oh, you're going to be in for something interesting and it's going to be an adventure. Well, this film would certainly uh, meet that requirement, wouldn't it, in terms of being interesting? I, Wow, I could spend a lot of time just going over the uh, main cast. Deborah Carr, remember her from our earlier podcast review of The Innocents? In oh, my gosh, 1961? Yeah. That's did. one of my favorite all-time movies. Yeah, she's mine, great. too. She did so many excellent films. Tea and Sympathy, 1956. From Here to Eternity, 1953. And Affair to Remember, 1957, which was made famous again uh, in the film Sleepless in Seattle. And The Sundowners, another one uh, with Robert Mitchum, takes place in Australia from 1960. And on and on and on. I tell you, she was a real talent. they kind of had to work to get her to be in this movie because by the time they were putting this movie together, she'd start her star had started to take off, um, and they had to. I, I think even even in the title cards it says that she's uh, in the film. Oh <clears throat> yes, she was on loan from. Um, yeah, on loan. Yeah. I forget who was she. Anyway, yes, I saw. I remember that. And then there was um, the actress Flora Robeson who played one of the nuns. Remember her from Murder at the Gallop? Yeah, we just watched the movie with her in it. <laughs> yes, yeah. she was she was the villain in that. But I, I came up with one that I wondered if you'd seen from 1981. She was in Clash of the Titans. Oh, I love that movie. Too bad that one uh, crosses over into the 80s, because I'd love to do a review of that. Oh, she talk about someone who made a lot of movies. I was looking at her list. And another person... You'll have to stop me here. I will go on for a long time. David Farrar made 50 films. Yeah. He was Mr. Dean. Yeah, he. I couldn't believe how many movies he's been in. I know. He's smoked. not well known in, in uh, the U.S. Um, okay, but I got to say that <laughs> I know it was the uh, style of the time, but his short shorts in this movie made me laugh every time I saw him. <laughs> yeah, he, he looked like an NBA ball player from about 1978. <laughs> Yeah. And then they're riding around on those little ponies. That horse is way too small for him. Oh, my gosh. I actually took a screenshot of that and sent it to Haley, and, and she texted me back that she was laughing because she thought that horse is so small. He was uh, quite the person in this. In his later life, he uh, he gave up film and m- moved to South Africa after his wife died. They'd been married for like 50 years or so. He just said, oh, that's enough of that. I'm gonna. He went and lived with his daughter in South Africa, just kind of walked away from it. Well, I mean, he did have a full career, it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, Well, I got to say that Kathleen Bryan was amazing in this movie, and I was reading that she was so good in this movie that she got typecast so that when she got to Hollywood uh, after this film, she had a really hard time 
finding roles that weren't just sort of like these psychotic women. Um, oh my! Which is too bad because I I thought she was just fantastic. Every time she was on the screen, I was mesmerized by by her look, just the the visual effect of her look, her face, and how it changed through the film. And that one that you sent me this morning, the favorite video from the film. When oh, she when she opens, opens the door? door and she's going to run out and push, try to kill uh, <laughs> yeah, Sister, uh, her, 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 her character's name was Sister Ruth. And Sister Cloda was the was the main uh, sort of head of the sisters there at the palace. Well, you know, I was thinking. I wrote, I made a I made a note here. What could go wrong with this? Five nuns from the convent go to this place in the in the high Himalayas to open up a hospital and school, and they really none of them have been in that kind of environment that I could tell. Dear madam, my name is Dean. I'm the agent of General Toda Riot Lupu, and I'm writing to you in that capacity. I understand the general has offered you the old palace of Mopu to make a school and a dispensary for the natives. It's not the first time he's had such ideas. He's asked me to tell you about the place and the people. It's not a comfortable spot, and it's at the back of beyond. First you have to get to Darjeeling, and then I have to find you ponies and porters to take you into the hills. Mupu is 8,000 feet up. The peaks on the range opposite are nearly as high as Everest. The people call the highest peak Nanga Devi. It means the bear goddess. I live down in the valley out of the wind. So do the general and so do the people. Mupu Palace stands in the wind on a shelf on the mountain. It was built by the general's father to keep his women there. It's called a palace, but there may be a slight difference between your idea of a palace and the general's. Anyhow, there it is. The people are like mountain peasants everywhere, simple, independent. They work because they must, they smile when they feel like it, and they're no respecters of persons. The men are men, no better, no worse than anywhere else. The women are women, the children, children. Up on the mountain above the palace, we have our holy man who sits there day in and day out in all weathers. All the people around are very proud of him and bring him food and little offerings. The wind up at the palace blows seven days a week, so if you must come, bring some warm things with you. And it's so isolated. The, the picture captures beautifully the wind and the, and the, uh, the terrain and all, even though it's all done, all done in a studio. Well, I, I, the very first note that I made, besides that I love the gong at the beginning, was that these are crazy good matte paintings. Like, I, I, hats off to the team that did those matte paintings because I think at that time they were indistinguishable from, from like a real location set. And even today they stand up, you know, really, really well. And I think I'm looking here at my notes. I believe they won an Academy Award for the. I know the Jack Cardiff won an Academy Award for the cinematography, and I think that the matte paintings and large-scale landscape paintings also won an award, but I can't find it right now. Well, I, I noticed something on the second watching of this. So the movie opens up at the convent in England, and... Uh, it shows a scene of the Reverend Mother, I think it's the Reverend Mother, looking at a book. It, it almost looks like a children's book, but it's a book uh, about Tibet and kind of the Himalayas. And there's a painting of the mountains, but it's very plain and very basic and almost like from a children's book. And I thought that was an interesting choice to show that because they could have shown any painting, right? Like they, But they chose to show one that was all, very childlike and simple. And, and I think it was a great kind of setup for the use of those matte paintings. And what I mean is that you're, you're shown a picture of a painting of the mountains that sets your expectations for what a picture, like a painting of the mountains would look like. And then the next thing you see of the mountains are these paintings, but they look so realistic that, you know, your expectations have been set with this sort of really simple painting that it helps you buy into the fact that those 
matte paintings are are real you know i i, I thought that was that's just like brilliant use of kind of setting your expectations i couldn't agree more the uh watching it i i forgot that it was filmed in a studio i i have a quote here from mr powell he said our mountains were painted on glass we decided to do the whole thing in the studio and that's the way we managed to maintain color control to the very end sometimes in a film its theme or its color are more important than the plot oh wow yeah and and then other films that they made they had the, the in the red shoes the again the it 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 almost seems like a fairy tale the way they do the film well and then in stairway to heaven they they switch back and forth between color when they're on the earth and black and white when they're in heaven and so yeah. color is such, such a huge part of this movie and i was uh, watching uh, some of the behind the scenes videos that were on the dvd and technicolor would have representatives on set to advise and to sort of quality control the the lighting and the the colors that they chose and the use of the camera and all that so this is like a very involved technical process to get that that technicolor uh, film and i didn't realize this but it was actually three individual strips of film that they're photographing onto simultaneously one for each color and then they're combined together in the development process into a color uh you know wow. imagine master. the time involved in that and the, and the size the size of the camera and i think that must have been one of the uh driving forces to decide to do this in the studio just because the camera itself was was huge wow it, it i can't say enough about the film it, you know there are so many things going on it's hard to put it into some kind of a uh, linear summary so here are my here are my uh, cliff notes. Issues with nuns. All that was involved in that, the different history of, of as they kind of like our main character would remember her love affair in Ireland, the remote location, the effects of the isolation, Mr. Dean and his influence on them, and uh, you know the end of it. As they leave the mountain, that was almost at the same time that Britain left India. And there's been some suggestion, even though the the novel was written in 1939, there's been some suggestion that this film was sort of a way of saying, uh, as, as uh, Britain left, they never really owned the land, it was really never theirs, and it was a graceful way to show their exit. I hadn't thought of that. Wow, that's pretty cool. I, I didn't, I didn't pick up, I didn't have that context, but that makes sense. T- talk about overanalyzing. <laughs> I really, I really uh, this is a this movie film. that you could really deep dive onto. So I came up with three themes for the film. One was a theme about authority versus choice. So again, I picked up on most of this the second time I watched it. Um, but at the very beginning, the Reverend Mother picks who's going to go with sister cloda like and sister cloda doesn't even have a choice she's just told that you're going to go to this palace monastery and set up this school the school and this clinic and then uh the reverend mother also picks all of the nuns that are going to go with her so they really have no choice sister cloda we may proceed with our plans at mopu it will be called saint faith saint faith and you have been appointed to take charge of saint faith I, Reverend Mother? You. You will be the youngest Sister Superior in our order. Thank you, Reverend Mother. Is there anything you would like to ask? Who am I to take with me? Remember, a community is not a class of girls. The sisters won't be easy to manage or to impress. Now, let me see. I'll give you Sister Bryony. You'll need her strength. Thank you, Reverend Mother. Sister Philippa for the garden. 
Sister Blanche. Sister Blanche. You know what the others call her? Sister Honey. Yes, Honey. I think you'll need Sister Honey. She's popular. And you'll need to be popular. <laughs> and Sister Ruth. But Sister Ruth is ill. That is why I want her to go. Forgive me for saying so, Reverend Mother, but do you think our vocation is her vocation? Yes, she's a problem. I'm afraid she'll be a problem for you too. With a smaller community, she may be better. Give her responsibility, sister. She badly wants importance. Do you think it's a good thing to let her feel important? Spare her some of your own importance, if you can. Mother, are you sorry that I have been appointed to take charge of St. Faith? Yes. I don't think you're ready for it. And I think you'll be lonely. Never forget we are an order of workers. Work them hard. And remember, the superior of all is a servant of all. I understand. And then as when they're there, they start to, like you said, remember things from their past, and they start to, uh, I think the isolation probably starts to play into this, but they start wanting to have a choice in what they're doing in their life. So, like, uh, Sister Ruth wants to basically leave the sisterhood, and uh, Sister Bryony wants to, you know, wants to plant uh, flowers instead of vegetables, you know, <laughs> so it's like, right. so that was one theme. And then uh, the, the, the second theme I had was the futility of trying to escape your past. So a, a lot of the flashbacks were about why Sister Clota ended up joining the sisterhood, but she never could really escape it because it's always with her, right? Yes. So, and then the third one was the the futility of trying to go up against nature like the, the mountains and the, that location were just so overpowering and majestic that there would be times when they would just be staring out into the into the distance you know like they would just be sort of lost in i think the beauty of where they were at and they would sort of lose focus on why they were there and what they were trying to do so those were the three things that really stood out to me Excellent. And, and all of them, I felt the same way. That that you, you did an excellent summary of that because uh, it it comes out throughout the film, all three of those. And we haven't even begun to talk about the role of the little, the uh, young general and the dancer, the Gene Simmons character, as kind of a subplot. That was an interesting subplot, and I and I I thought Gene Simmons did a really good job. I, I think she was about that age, like 17, 18, something like that. And um, it was a good choice. Like, I, I at first I was like, well, that's a white actress playing sort of an Indian uh, character. But then I realized, well, actually, I think that's Mr. Dean's illegitimate child. And so the fact that she looks kind of white makes sense. Like, Oh, that's an, that's an interesting idea. I, yeah. Well, because, so... Uh, the reason that I think that is that it's there's a scene when uh, she's first introduced. Her name's Kenji, mm-hmm. and and Mr. Dean brings her to the to live with the nuns, and he says that she's an orphan, but that she's always hanging out in front of his house. And this is right around 32 minutes into the movie. Her name is Hasempul, but we call her Kenji. She's 17. She's an orphan. It's high time she was married. Every evening when I come home, I find her sitting on my veranda. She dresses herself up, puts flowers in her hair. It's becoming an absolute nuisance. If she's cloistered for a few months, her uncle will marry her off, but she's been behaving so badly that no one wants her. I don't think we want her either. Why did you bring her to us? Isn't it your business to save souls? You are not to speak to me like that, Mr. Dean. Sorry. Can't she go into some sort of service? She'd said any house for the years. I thought no one would have patience with her, except you.
Would you ask Sister Bryony to come here, please? Kenji? Kenji? Sister Clota gives him the strange looks looks at Kenji, looks over at Mr. Dean, looks back at Kenji, looks back to Mr. Dean, and then Mr. Dean says You're sure there's no question you're dying to ask me. I remember that. And I think that she like looked at her and said, Boy, there's a real resemblance here. I wonder if this is his daughter. I I I bet that I bet that was the case. There were a lot of innuendos and uh, the subtext the sexual tension got started right at the beginning uh when they when they first met mr dean yes mr dean and his his small horse and his shorts <laughs> short shorts <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that hat that hat looked like it was 500 years old that straw hat Oh, that hat, yeah. So the first interaction between Mr. Dean and the nuns goes something like this, where uh, he, he he sort of walks in, he's all blustery, and, and Mr. Uh, Sister Clotus says, we want to talk to you on business. And then he kind of quips back and says, don't suppose you want to talk to me about anything else, and then kind of gives her this weird look. And she <laughs> she's yep. offended by that. And I thought, you know, that, that's that's a total, like, sexual play on his part right there i think you know like he's i can't decide if i like his character or not actually i know <laughs> well you know the, the 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 partnership that put the film together said that they the whole film from beginning to end had these subtext and the the sexual innuendo and lust and all that 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 was intended by the way they did that and your examples are just reinforcing that because it's it's throughout the film yeah, absolutely, and and I think it's it it's really key to sort of the climax of the movie where uh, Sister Ruth gets gets dressed up in a, in a really nice you know fashionable dress and does her hair up and puts on makeup and 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 kind of gets into a, an argument with Sister Clota about how she's noticed that Sister Clota has been looking at Mister Dean. Sister Clota denies it, but then where does where does Sister Ruth go when she runs away from the palace? She goes right to Mr. Dean's house. Yes, and, and then he acts like he was surprised to see her. Like in my mind, he's sort of been promoting this the whole time just by the way he acts. I thought it was a jerk move on his part to deny the fact that he'd been doing that, you know, and. and and it just gets Sister Ruth so worked up that she ends up passing out. Sister Ruth? I can't stand it any longer. I left the order. I gave up my vows. I finished with them up there. I see. Well, I can arrange for you to stay at the rest house. I'll send my boy over now. In the morning, I'll get ponies and porters to take you to Darjeeling. I love you. Yep. Well, if you do, you can forget about it. <laughs> I'm sorry, Sister Ruth. Very sorry, but... Look, let me take you back to the palace. It isn't too late. Sister Claude is your friend. She spoke to me about you last night. She wants to help you. She hates me. They all hate me. Well, the only one that's ever been kind to me. I have hardly spoken a word to you. Yes, you have. The first time is when I stopped the old native woman from bleeding to death. You said you were grateful. Did I? And then when you stopped me that day in the hall, you said... Well, I whatever I... I said, it didn't mean a thing. Ever since you came here, you've all gone crazy. Well, drive one another crazy, but leave me out of it. You're into Darjeeling or not? No. Then you must go back to the palace. No. You'll go back if I have to carry you back. 
Go and talk to Sister Cloda. She brought you here, she can get you back again. Sister Cloda, Sister Cloda! Do you know what she says about you? Or whatever she said, it was true. You said that because you love her! I don't love anyone! Cloda. And I love the fact that they did that from her perspective and they made the screen turn red. Yes. And then the camera kind of, and then the camera kind of like lilted off to the left because I think that was another great use of color and, and uh, perspective there. Well, the use of color throughout the film is, is unbelievable. The clip that you sent me this morning where Sister Chloe is is back at the uh at the at the convent or the the school and hospital and she's walking with the wind and that she has on that uh, garment it almost looked ghost like yeah the way she's moving through that scene it almost seems surreal to me until she goes over to the bell and there's a minute where she's looking and I'm thinking what is she thinking about because it's at the edge of that cliff and she's looking down like Something's in her mind about what should I do here? What like she maybe she's thinking about something? jumping, maybe or yeah. Maybe I tell you this: we could watch this film five times and 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 find new meaning throughout it. It's so dense. Well, there, one other thing I wanted to mention about that scene uh, with Sister Ruth and Mister Dean at his house after she's run away and she's all dressed up. Uh, that scene was originally scripted to play out with her sort of like going in and, and grabbing things and throwing them around and kind of having like a temper tantrum in the house. And Kathleen, uh, the actress, was like, well, I don't really think that's what she would do. I think what she would do is she she's sort of worshipping Mr. Dean. I think she would go in and she would lovingly look at his belongings and sort of just enjoy the fact that she was in his space. And the director was like, "Well, I, uh, that's just, that's just not what I think would they would do. But if if you think that's what she would do, then let's just let's just do it." And the director wasn't even on on stage when they filmed that scene. The f- director of photography was like, "Well, what are we going to do here?" And and <laughs> she was like, "Well, this is yeah, this is what I this is what I think we should do." So that whole thing was kind of imp- uh, improvised. I didn't know that either. And well, Jack Cardiff, the cinematographer later did direct some movies, so he probably just stepped in and kind of took over yeah. when the director wasn't there. And then do you remember when she when she was, like, Mr. Dane told her that she needs to go back to the convent, and she was she was leaving, but she stops at, at the doorway there, and, and he puts his hand on her shoulder? Yes. And then she puts her hand on his hand, and that was totally improvised as well. That wasn't in the script. And... It was because the actress Kathleen, and now I'm re- not remembering her. By, uh, Kathleen Byron was like I. I still think she's savable at that point. Like she's still there's still some humanity left in her, and that's her way of showing it. But because she's turned away by Mister Dean, it, it's sort of like the final straw, and she's not she's not able to be saved after that. So I thought that those like, little touches like that are just so awesome in this movie they just add so much depth to it oh and and there's so many of them like when um the young uh general or colonel i forget sabu's character shows up and wants to learn all kinds of things he's put together a complete schedule of what he wants to learn at this <laughs> yeah. school and they're set up to to uh, uh teach children like ages 8 to 12 or so and he's ready to learn all this stuff and then he meets, uh, is it uh, Gene Kim, uh, Simmons' character? I forget uh, her name. Kenji. Yeah, Kenji. And, and his plan gets sidetracked. Yeah, he's pretty interested in Kenji. But the, the best part about that scene when he's listing off all of the things that he wants to learn, the last one is, I want to learn physics with the physical sister. Why are they called the servants of Mary? Is the superior sister called Mary? Ask her. Here she comes. Uh, go now. I will speak to her alone. Good morning. Good morning. I want to see the superior sister. I am the sister superior. Oh. I want to be a student here with you. I want to study a lot of learning. 
I want to study mathematics, history, poetry, and languages. I have a note from my uncle to ask you to encourage me. I'm very sorry, we only teach children and young girls. Why? Convents don't teach men pupils. That's not very polite to men. We don't mean it that way, it's the custom. Convents are for girls, the brotherhoods are for men. Jesus Christ was a man. He took the shape of a man. But you don't need to count me as a man. I'm only interested in studious things. Please, sister, I've written out my timetable. May I read it to you? 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., algebra with the mathematical sister. 8 a.m. to 10 a.m., religion, especially Christianity, with the scriptural sister. 10 a.m., art. 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., French and Russian with the French and Russian sisters, if any. 3 p.m. to 4 p.m., physics with the physical sister. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I didn't know that was a part of their order, but, well, you know. <laughs> no. Well, I think it's all part of this subtext of, like, this sexual tension. Oh, you know? absolutely. Just, and yeah. and uh, he did a marvelous job in this film. <laughs> oh, my. Did, I, uh, I also learned, this was fascinating to me, uh, the person that played his dad, the, the general. Oh, right. Uh, was, an actor, yeah, was an actor before World War II and was good friends with the director, Esmond Knight. Uh, yeah, and but had been really badly injured in the war and, and was blind. Uh, but this role was kind of written for him, and so the directors reached out and said, "Hey, you still want to? You know, you still interested in acting?" And he's like, "Sure, why not?" So if you look at him with that with that knowledge, you'll realize that he, yeah, he's he's blind. He he can't see anything, and I think it just adds an extra dimension to his character. He just looks a little bit. Uh, different. Yep, he does, and I didn't know it was because of that. But I tell you, I um, I got so enthralled with Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. I looked up some of their background when they put together the Archers, their production company. They had a mission statement, like you'd see in companies today. It was five points, I think. Basically, what it said was, "We're going to run our own show, and we're going to do this the way we want to do it, and our only." obligation is to pr uh, provide quality uh, highly entertaining film and uh, be successful for our financial backers uh, i'm i'm oh, paraphrasing wow. a lot of it but i found that interesting that they had sat down and put that i feel down like they were i feel like they were decades ahead of their time like the the, the uh, way I think that they so. structured their company the way that they did their filming and put the the movies together just it just felt like something that you would see decades later and not, not in the, you know, 40s is, is really interesting. It's, um, there, I guess there was some tension on the, uh, on the set because Deborah Carr had been in some relationship with, I believe, Mr. Powell, and it, it, that had ended. Uh, huh. And I, I don't have that in front of me, but I, I remember reading something about that, that there was sort of some backstage things going on. Uh, now I can't find my note on that. It, all, it seems like there's always some backstage things going on <laughs> yeah, in, in films. I, sometimes I get lost in that. Like, what? And, and, and wow. It's kind of like, it kind of grosses me out to think about it, you know, given all the revelations of what's, what we've learned in the last, you know, couple months. Um, oh, yeah, it has a and, whole And just new... thinking that, you know, that's been going on for forever. Uh, well, the... Um, I found a quote about the end of the film because I found it interesting because of the British Empire. One of the interpretations that people thought British viewers might have in 1947, and this is a quote from one of the people that wrote it, that this film represented a last farewell to the fading empire, and this person suggests that the filmmakers didn't want to treat it as an image of defeat, but of a respectful, rational retreat from something that England never owned and never understood in terms of, you know, how the nuns left uh, the the, uh, the facility there. I don't know if that's... Because the, the story was written much earlier, but it has a certain... It resonates with me in that way. A well, there's a, there's, a, there's a line in the movie when they're talking about the, um, the yogi 
the the wise man who just sits and, and kind yes. of looks out over the valley, that he actually is rich and owns all that land and had donated that uh, you know the land for the palace at some point in the past. I, I don't. It doesn't really go into specifics, but uh, so. I think that plays into this idea that, you know, they never really owned it and they were kind of occupying it. Later, later when uh, Mr. Dean and uh, Sister Clota are talking and Sister Clota's going through her all of her kind of history and the effect that, that being in Tibet has had on her. Do you notice a change in us since we came here? I notice a change in you. Am I very different? Yes. You're much nicer. Nicer? Hmm. You're human. Human. Yes, we're all human, aren't we? When I was a girl, I loved a man. We were children together in Ireland, where I come from, a little place called Dennis Kelly. I thought, everyone thought, we should marry but he was ambitious, and I found out he was going to America to his uncle. And he didn't intend to take me. He didn't think he was doing anything wrong. I don't think he ever thought of us marrying. But in a little place like that, and I had shown I loved him, I had to get away first. And that's why you entered the order? And being you, you wouldn't go back. It was a strange way of bringing me in, but God works in strange ways. I had work to do, and I had the life. No one outside can possibly know what that means. It came to be my life. I had forgotten everything until I came here. first day I came, I thought of him for the first time for years. I seemed to go back to the first time I loved him when we were children. The young general reminds me of him too. The world comes thrusting in behind him. I've been drifting and dreaming and now I seem to be living through the struggle and the bitterness again. Here. It's quite clean. I washed my hair this morning. Don't take on so, there's a good girl. It'll all blow over. There's nothing really wrong. Sister Philippa is leaving. And this morning I had a letter from Reverend Mother. Sister Ruth is giving up the order. She has not renewed her vows. I'm sorry. And you? Ever since we came here, over all our troubles, it's been, ask Mr. Dean, ask Mr. Dean. There was just no one else you could ask. I had to take the young general. I couldn't turn out the holy man. I couldn't stop the wind from blowing and the air from being as clear as crystal and I couldn't hide the mountains. Look, you must get away from here, all of you, at once. Run away? Yes, if you've got any sense. What, leave all this work like the brothers? Yes. I told you it was no place to put a nunnery. There's something in the atmosphere that makes everything seem exaggerated. Don't you understand? You must all get away before something happens. Wow. What a, what a film. I, um... Jack Cardiff won an Academy Award for Best Cinematography... And Alfred Young won an Academy Award for Best Art Direction. So I think he was probably overseeing all those matte paintings and all. Mm, and wow. Deborah Carr won the uh, an award with, from the New York Film Critics Circle for Best Actress. So it wasn't, um, it was a hit and it wasn't, uh, it was highly regarded by people. At the- well, and it was, it was, I couldn't believe this, but when I first read it, but then as I thought about it, I was like, yeah, of course. 
But there were certain scenes in this film that had to be edited out in order to have it play in the United States. And oh, I read one, some of that too, yes. Yeah, one of them was the scene where uh, Sister Ruth puts on the red lipstick because it was felt that that was too provocative. <laughs> I remember reading something about that, um, and now I, I've lost that note too, but yes, I, there were two or three things. That's a bummer because, like, that whole scene, the, the, the scene starting with when Sister Cloda is kind of walking down the hallway and knocking on doors and checking on people and then realizes that something's up with Sister Ruth and then Sister Ruth uh, lets her in and there's that reveal that she's wearing the really nice modern dress and has the makeup on and, and her hair done up was, like, shocking. Like, it actually, like... It was like a jump scare almost the first time I watched it because you did that is not what you, you know you're expecting as an audience to see. Oh, I I agree totally. There was another edited out part for the film when it was shown in the United States, and that had to do with Deborah Carr's character, Sister Cloda. Said yeah. Sister Cloda's life before becoming a nun was edited out. Those scenes when the flashbacks took place, I guess that was originally not in the film in the U.S. I haven't seen that U.S. version. I'm not even sure if it exists today with those edited out scenes. Yeah, I think it. I think it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be as nearly as. It would still be a really good movie, but it would. La it would definitely be lacking if you took those scenes out. I think those are some of those little touches in the film that just add the depth to it. You know, there again, the plot is so many layers. We haven't even talked about the uh, woman that was sort of the caretaker of this place. Oh my gosh, Angu Waya, I think, or something. I can't. I don't think I quite got that right, but wasn't she something? She was great, and when we first meet her, the music that's playing, yes, is so like mystical and and kind of otherworldly. And there's a great line about ghosts of bygone days, and. I just love that whole scene when we first meet her. She lives there alone with the ghosts of bygone days. And that ties into the end when Deborah Carr's character in that white outfit is running along the wall, moving along the wall. It looks ghostly. It, it's, oh my gosh, yeah, she really does. I hadn't thought about that, but she really, really does look like a ghost. And and in fact, Sister Ruth is all in shadows and, and she's just a silhouette and she's sort of the, the polar opposite where uh, Deborah Care's uh, character is all in white, and then uh, you know, Sister Ruth is all black, and ah, oh, that's cool. It's I hadn't thought just about that. Amazing what they've done, and the music throughout the film I thought was excellent. Credit to Brian Easdale. aspects of this that really reminded me of a, a Kurosawa movie with the, the constantly blowing wind and there's almost there's motion in almost every scene like there's very few static shots I just thought that that di those dynamic shots added to it and really made you feel like they were on location 
I know. It, it didn't take long for me to realize that they were on location. I just got into the film and didn't even think that they weren't. It was so magic. It's it's magical. I, th- I, I my review of this it, it's a ten clearly, without a doubt. I just love oh totally, it. absolutely yeah, absolutely a ten. And and I, I I we didn't even go through like the the plot scene by scene. I I don't know if it's really. I I think we've touched on what the important things are that really stood out to us, but. Just go watch this movie. <laughs> That's all I can say. There's about 17 plots going on. <laughs> there's humor. There's drama. There's so much uh, subtext. Sexual there's tension. Lust. Dancing. Lust, dancing, yeah. There's just there's, there's, there's shots that just linger on architectural or natural beauty. And there's no... There's no reason for it it doesn't advance the plot per se but it just set it just continues to set and reinforce the the mood of the film and yeah i just i love the i love kind of the the shots of like a doorway that's just you know it it just lingers there for like 10 seconds it's i first saw this movie in college and i came away uh overwhelmed by it because there was so much going on that I didn't understand at that age. Then when I look back on it now, I was like, wow. I missed a lot in that first time I saw it. And the poster for the movie doesn't really do it a lot of justice either. It's a story of fascinating adventure in a strange and beautiful land. Well, yeah. but Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's an awful lot besides that going on. Yeah, I don't even know how you would put this into two sentences or something. I don't um, either. They probably the, had trouble well, with that. A couple other things I noticed that I just wanted to call out is that almost exactly, like, to the minute, in the middle of the film, we, we hear the words Black Narcissus. And Sister Ruth is kind of uh, a bit obsessed with the young general. And the young general brings out this handkerchief and and he talks about how it's got the scent of black narcissus on it. And I just, I, I, I felt like there was some meaning, there's like some deeper meaning to that. I, uh, I just wondered what your thoughts were about the, the, the name black narcissus. I, 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 I'm not really sure other than uh, for me, it captures all that's going on in this film, all the many plots and subplots. It's very multi-layered, mystical, a faraway land. And Mysterious. these nuns are sort of on the edge of a different life. Yeah. Literally, yeah. in the case of one, on the edge. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And who would put a bell in that location? Yeah, that was a really bad spot. <laughs> if a big wind came up. The, all the, also, the models were not, you know, at the beginning of the film, they had a aerial view of the, of the place they were at. I forget what it was called. And that was all a model. Yeah, I thought that was a really well-done model. Uh, yeah. They spent a lot of time and, and energy on putting this together. There was one, there was one scene, again, they, they did quite a few shots of, of, like, looking down on the palace at where that bell was. And then you would then you would see like this thousand foot drop down to the valley, and there was one scene where the clouds in the valley were moving, and I was like, "Holy crap! How did they do that?" Like, yes. I know that's a I know that's a matte painting, but then they must have had another thing behind it where they were they were somehow animating that, and I think some of the techniques that were in this film are absolutely still used today, maybe more you know in a digital sense, but like this is. This is just incredible filmmaking. The, the, it the, just it just kind of blows my mind. The <laughs> time like, and labor involved in that would be uh, a lot, large. There's no the, at the time. I don't think there's any way they could have filmed this on location. Like the, the, those shots that they got, there would there would have been no way for them to get those shots. No. Well, all right. Well, we should wrap this up. <laughs> everyone should watch it if they haven't seen it. I totally agree. Go. Go watch this movie. Uh, 
it's on Netflix DVD, so you can you can have it delivered that way. You can buy it uh, through various digital outlets. Uh, it's it's it is. I don't think it's on Blu-ray, but the DVD version is really really good. So I would uh, just get that if you can. I got my copy from Amazon, and it's a really excellent copy, but it wasn't Blu-ray. Yeah. Um. So we give it a ten. Solid ten. I would. 10 plus. 10 plus, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so for our next so, adventure, oh, this was our 98th, 98th episode, so we're approaching 100. We still haven't done a reveal on number 100, but what, what would you think about number 99? Earlier, I had two suggestions. Yeah, the gunfighter or the killers. Both of them excellent. One, uh, the killers with Gregory Peck from 1950 and the... I mean, The Gunfighter, I got that mixed up, I think. Gregory Peck in The Gunfighter, 1950, and Burt Lancaster in The Killers from 1946. Well, I haven't seen either one, so I would say you pick. Which one do you want to watch? The Gunfighter. All right, let's watch The Gunfighter for number 99, and then we will do our homework between now and then and figure out 100. Yeah, we've Uh, we've got a lot to pick we've only got 27 million films to pick from yes yeah, it's gonna be easy to <laughs> narrow it down <laughs> and we've got quite a few suggestions from folks so it's like the more the more suggestions the better right yeah and, and again i mean we're we're just excited to reach that milestone we're going to continue to be doing the podcast and well, maybe we'll reach 200 that's our next goal so. we will and and hopefully we'll have more family as guests yeah, that would be so fun. I thought that was great that Haley joined us last time. Thanks, Haley. Thank you, Haley. <laughs> and and any of the other kids are welcome to join us at any time as well. Always. But not the dogs. No, they've been very good today. Oh, by the way, those pictures of them before and after are uh, revealing. They don't oh, even look yeah, like the before same their animal. haircut and after their haircut. Yeah, they're Oh, my shady. gosh. <laughs> They're half the size after their haircut. <laughs> and they can see. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, that was uh, Black Narcissus. Uh, clearly, we love the movie. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. This is Matt Johnson coming to you from North Bend. And Bob Johnson from Los Angeles wishing everyone happy movie watching. You said you'd give us till the rains break. They haven't broken yet. What will they do with you down there? I shall be sent to another convent with less responsibility. I shall be superseded as sister in charge. Will you be able to stomach that? A stiff-necked, obstinate creature like you? It's what I need. I expect I shall have to remind myself of it a hundred times a day. I can't change in a minute like the young general. But I shall have my ghosts to remind me. You're leaving me with more than one. Will you do one last thing for me? I know you'd rather not do it. Of course I'll do it. Will you look after the grave? All right. Goodbye.
Yeah, tell me about your trip to Death Valley. Ah, uh, yes, my friend Don and I are planning a uh, a road trip to Death Valley, which will include a trip to uh, stop at uh, Lone Pine and Bishop. And Lone Pine is um, famous for having like three or four hundred, if not more, movies filmed around there in the Alabama hills and so forth. And um, one of the movies that we've uh, reviewed was at Spencer Tracy, where he comes back as that veteran and runs into a hornet's nest in this little town in the valley. That whole town was built just for the movie. Bad day at Black Rock. Yeah, but there are many others, like High Sierra with Spencer, with uh, Hubert, uh, Hubert Humphrey, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Humphrey, <laughs> Humphrey Bogart. Oh my and gosh. he gets uh, he gets done in up in the uh, up in the mountains near uh, Mount Whitney. Man, I need more coffee. I Hubert Humphrey. Good Lord. Uh, I don't know if you need more coffee. You, you oh, said boy. you had a double espresso. You might need less coffee. <laughs> I hope not. Oh my! So today we're going to do um, 